0: Hello everyone and welcome to the sixth episode of Branch 251. Karam Shamali here and Fritz Streif.
1: Today on the podcast we'll talk about Iyad A, the second accused in this trial. He has been kind of in the shadow of the main accused, Anwar R, because on the face of it he just looks like the less interesting story, the less interesting profile. So we went on a trip to find answers to the question whether that's really the case and I think we found some pretty interesting insights and some contradictions in the different versions of, uh, of events and, and of his story that we want to share with you on today's episode.
0: Yes, I talked to many people who knew him back in Syria and also in Germany, but it was not easy. I can tell you that. Today, we'll get to know Iyad A a bit better from two perspectives. First, based on what I learned from his friends, family, and former colleagues, their side of the story. One of them was ready to be on the podcast today, a former colleague who goes way back with IAD A. He actually worked at Branch 251 and has a strong opinion about this trial in Koblenz. So we will hear the conversation I had with him in a bit. And then we will hear from someone who has been the public gallery in Koblenz every single day of the trial so far. Uh, she has been able to observe Iyad A from that perspective, Iad A as an accused in court, as the person that is facing allegations of crimes, against humanity in at least 30 counts of torture.
1: Okay, let's start. So what do we know about Iyad A's background in history?
0: Well, I spoke to more than 15 people who know him, like uh, family members, childhood friends, and former colleagues. Mm Iyad A was born in 1976, and he grew up in Mohassan. It's a a tribal uh, small town in the resort in eastern Syria, and where most of the locals uh, mainly work in agriculture. He grew up in a very rural environment. Many of the local youth at some point moved either to daryl city or the capital Damascus, and that's for better opportunities. Uh, the town has seen a lot of fighting and misery in the past years. Uh, first, the rebels took control, and uh, then Al-Qaeda followed, and later on came ISIS, and uh, now it's controlled by the American-backed Syrian Democratic Forces that's why many of Iyad A's family ended up in europe as refugees uh, and from what we know Iyad a had a simple childhood uh, his father was a farmer and he died when Iyad A was uh, still a child he and his siblings cousins and friends would play outside a lot like most children do and they were and are all obsessed with football and uh, they are big fans of uh, barcelona football club Nothing much special, really, in terms of growing up. After he left high school uh, in 1996, he was about 20. He first joined the intelligence services. But the people I talked to told me that for the longest part of his career in intelligence, he was just an instructor, teaching new recruits, training them. He would do sports and drill training with them and was not part of any political or other sensitive work, really.
1: Yeah, that is also what you learned from his former colleague that you talked to, right? Let's uh, let's listen to your guys' conversation.
0: Yes, I talked to a former colleague of his. He worked with him in the Syrian security services and also defected. His name is Fahd Al-Hamid, and here's what he told me.
2: Al-Hamid.
0: My name is Fahd Al-Hamid. I served in the
3: state security branch at Intelligence Directorate in branch 251. I worked in the interrogation department and I defected in the beginning of 2013. Now I'm living in Turkey with my
2: family. Iyad and I
3: were colleagues for 10 years. We have known each other longer. We come from the same region.
2: Iyad
3: and I go way back to our days in al-Zur. We became close after we both enrolled together at the State Security of the Intelligence Directorate in Najha in 1996. We enrolled for financial reasons after secondary school. We come from farm families and we couldn't afford to continue our education. Those who were physically fit with the best grades in training were chosen as trainers. And amongst them were Ayatna. We were assigned to training new recruits for the next 10 years. Until 2006. 2006, that is when we
2: were
0: reassigned to the Internal Security Branch. And how did he end up at Branch 251 in Damascus?
2: Well, in
3: 2006, the Internal Security Branch needed more recruits.
2: تم نقل عناصر من الفرع 295
3: 251. So they chose 20 to 30 members from Branch 295, and they were sent to Branch
2: 251.
3: They asked for the best, and those with the best physical build. So Iyad and I were chosen. We didn't want to. I tried to go back to my position as a trainer.
2: نقلنا يعني علما انه يعني ما كان بالنقل انا واحد من الناس
3: Iyad also wanted to go back. When I got to branch 251,
2: I requested to be transferred back, but my request was rejected.
3: Our transfers were compulsory, not voluntary. In both our cases, Iyad and
2: mine. 40 Iyad
3: was posted to the 40th section in an emergency force and guards team. When the protests started, he was assigned to the team that gathered field intelligence. At that point, we were in different divisions and talked
2: less.
3: I saw Iyad every now and then when he would occasionally come to branch 251, when he, for example, would come to collect his paychecks.
0: And what happened then? How did Iyad end up defecting? Well, Hafiz Makhlouf, the head of the 40th branch,
3: took it upon himself to raid neighborhoods and disperse demonstrators. He would take his men to go to demonstrations. He would request support from the Republican guards and the 4th Division.
0: In this case, in Germany now, the police asked Iyad A why he did not refuse the orders. Uh, He didn't agree with them. Why did he not say no? You can't say, no I don't want to join,
3: because you will be taken to jail right away, you will be considered a traitor and an agent and things like that.
2: If you oppose, you will be executed
3: or eliminated. I was in touch with Iyad and I knew that he had made up his mind to defect, especially after Hafiz Maklouf ordered raids on what they called hotspots such as Harasta, Duma, and Zabadani. He deployed his men and the Republican Guards and 4th Division. He even brought in cleaning workers and gave them
0: firearms and batons. And have you been following the trial in Germany? What's your reaction to it?
3: This is a case of injustice.
0: It is wronging Iyad al-Qarib.
3: He was one of the first to defect and he helped people. He didn't agree to be part of this killing machine and he suffered for it. Had he been captured while defecting or before reaching safety, he would have been executed. When you defect, you are endangering yourself, your life, your children and your family. This his reward? While the real criminals are in Damascus and other countries? The regime men who committed crimes against
2: Syria and Syrians?
3: This is injustice, not
2: justice. I hope
0: that this trial is fair and just. And that was my conversation with Fahd Al-Hamid.
1: Okay, interesting. So that former colleague of EadA says they both kind of got caught up in an environment that they did not agree with and that they wanted to get transferred back to their sort of instructor post that they had before um, and, uh, yeah, got out and defected as soon as they could, kind of like Anwar R.'s story um, from, from weeks ago. And he also says that this whole trial against Iyad A is just a disgrace.
0: Yes, uh, he he thinks uh, Iyad A is a hero. He's a hero for refusing uh, to continue his career in the security services and he's hero for risking his life and defecting. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I find this interesting because Iyad A's own story is pretty much the same from what we know. It's at least very similar, but there are some interesting contradictions. And... Um, we know that because A told the German migration and refugee authorities very openly about his past after he arrived in Germany. The court in Koblenz went through this information when I was there, and I took really detailed notes. And, and when I compare those, this, this is where it gets a little bit muddy, I think. So when he applied for asylum in Germany, he told the German migration and refugee authorities that he joined Branch 251 only in 2010, that is at least four years later than what his former colleague is saying here. Yet A said he worked for the religious department where he gathered intelligence on religious leaders about what was said and, and, and preached in mosques. And he told the German authorities you know, that he was just a desk officer. He would write reports on what he could find out and, and nothing more than that. Yeah. He also told the German migration authorities that he only a bit after that
0: joined subdivision 40. This is not really what his former colleague uh, told me, you know. Yeah. He said uh, earlier that they both joined Branch 251 in 2006. Uh, they were transferred after uh, working as trainers, both of them for 10 years. And in 2006, they were posted uh, and Iyad was uh, sent to subsection uh, 40 immediately.
1: Yeah, so that is where those versions of events are contradicting, and yeah, the timelines just don't don't really match. Um, if what the former colleague is saying is correct, then it seems that e at A might be trying to minimize or you know shorten the time that he actually worked at Branch Two Fifty One and uh, at the notorious Subsection Forty by at least four
0: years. But who knows? His former colleague might be getting his timeline wrong or confuse things in other way. Uh, yeah. For now, it's just another version of events.
1: All right. Back to what Iyad A. told the German authorities in 2018. He said during his asylum interview then that during this time at subsection 40, in his version of events, only after 2010, he was told to kill civilians, to arrest members of opposition just for protesting. He was told to shoot at protesters and that there was an incident when his boss, Hafiz Mahlouf, that we just mentioned, turned up at a protest himself and told him and his colleagues, quote unquote, if you love the president, you shoot the traitors.
0: This is one of the moments his former colleague also uh, described to me. My sources mentioned this as well, and they say this is a key moment for Iyad a It's like the moment he... Uh, contemplated defecting or decided to defect. He had no other choice but to follow orders and shoot. And uh, I was told that he actually did shoot, but tried not to hit any protesters.
1: Yeah, that's also his story during the interview with um, the German migration and refugee authorities that I uh, listened to when when the court went through that. And um, yeah, it seems that that is kind of like the the reason eventually that he defected, that that, that moment was sort of the final straw for him to, to make that decision. Um, yet he told the Germans that After defecting, he went into hiding for a few months. He pretended to have to travel to a funeral, a family funeral, and took his family and and never came back to his post after that. And then he left Syria for Turkey and Greece to eventually make it to Germany. But it looks like he left out some pretty important stuff in the meantime.
0: Yes, so from what I understand, uh, Iyad A left his post in early 2012 and went into hiding for a bit uh, in his home area. Uh, He might have changed a couple of homes uh, back and forth, but uh, he was in hiding. And then a couple of my sources uh, told me that he was a member of the local military council, uh, which was uh, at the time a rebel body that was mainly formed of defected officers and soldiers. Uh, Iyad A wanted apparently to apply his experience and expertise to help the revolution. And uh, also, while I was researching him, I found a, a very important uh, opposition media activist uh, in an interview. Uh, he, he talked about Iyad A's activities with the Syrian rebels. And he referred to him using his uh, rebel alias, uh, Abu Ayyub. Abu Ayyub. So Iyad A was Abu Ayyub in
1: in the rebel uh, lingo?
0: Yes, this uh, source who gave the interview is uh, one of the people who defend Iyad and say he's innocent. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
1: we'll, we'll link to that um, article, that interview, uh, it's on the internet. We'll link to that in the show notes. Um, and yeah, that that's another point that is not clear at all from what he told German authorities later during his asylum interview in 2018 at least from from what i myself heard in koblenz in court when they went through his statement to the german migration and refugee authorities he never mentioned that he was an active member of the armed opposition uh, between defecting and and leaving uh, syria but maybe maybe that was just not part of his statement at that time and maybe he he told the police uh, later on uh, i don't know that that's that's possible
0: I'm not sure why he would hide the fact that he became a rebel. Uh, seems strange given that hundreds, if not thousands of former rebel fighters uh, and defected officers are now refugees in Germany and in Europe. Maybe he mentioned it in later interviews. Um, Maybe it has not come up yet. I mean, we will see. In any case, from what he told the German authorities, he
1: just went into hiding after defecting. And then he eventually left Syria in the beginning of 2013. And uh, went on a pretty long trip. Uh, they stayed in Turkey. Uh, he and his family for three years, and then in Greece for another two years. And he then only arrived in Germany in two thousand and eighteen, so that was a that was a five year long uh, trip. He applied for asylum, and when the migration and refugee officer noticed, in the interview that he started mentioning international crimes uh, that were committed in his in his environment and in what he was recounting that uh, that interview the transcript and his case file was transferred to the police
0: yes so he became a witness and the police wanted to get information from him on branch 251 and subdivision 40. but then the investigators put one and one together and uh, they concluded that he worked for subdivision 40 which uh, did the arresting and transferring work for branch 51? He kind of went from asylum seeker to witness to accused, and they indicted and arrested him.
1: So we have a better picture now of Iyad A's background and and how he got to where he is now in court as an accused. Let's get another take on Iyad A from a different perspective. I talked to Hannah El-Hitami this week, Hannah is a freelance journalist based in Berlin, focusing on Arab countries and migration. She is following the trial very closely and has been at every single uh, court session. So she kind of uh, knows Iyad from the perspective of, of looking at him uh, in court as an accused. And she says she has had eye contact with him uh, multiple times. I talked with her on the phone this week, and here is what I asked her about Iyad Hi, Hannah. Hi, Fritz. Hi, how are you how doing? Are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for uh, for talking to us today, uh, Hannah. We really appreciate it. Something we are very curious about for this week's episode is um, the question of the person of iad A.
4: What he usually does is just he w- comes in in his magenta red <laughs> uh, sweatsuit and he sits there with his face mask and sometimes chats with his translator looks around. He actually looks to the audience quite a lot. Maybe he's just bored or he wants to see who's there. Some of the Syrians who are there as uh, spectators, so for example Mazender, which he's very, very famous. I don't know about ETA, but I'm almost 100% sure that Anwar R would know this guy. Yeah. Um, so I often wonder how these people feel, you know, sitting there and looking into the audience and seeing those Syrian activists, uh, looking back at them and watching every word they say. Um, I can only imagine what it must feel like
1: interesting and where r doesn't look over at all
4: uh he does yeah he does i have definitely have had eye contact with both of them uh more than once but i would say that yet a looks maybe to the audience a bit more often Mm -hmm. my my personal impression of yet is very mixed so on the one hand we have really had a chance to learn more about this person through documents that's kind of form a puzzle of who this person might be and there are some things that really make you feel uh, sympathetic towards him like There was one document that stated the health problems of his daughter. He has a daughter who is in a wheelchair. For him, the most important thing is that his daughter in Germany now can receive proper treatment for her disease. And, you know, this kind of makes you feel sympathetic towards a a human being, you know. And then the next document is presented, and it says that there was a criminal complaint against Yad A a while ago when he was still in a refugee camp in Germany. Where he slapped a boy, and then he threatened that boy's father to chop off the head and the oh, wow. hand of the boy. Um, and he also got into a fight with some other um, refugees from the home. So then you uh, you think, oh well, he's also capable of that. In the end, you know, you have many ideas about that person. But so I'm just glad that I don't have to judge <laughs> what what who he is. The job of the tr- of the court is to find out what he did. And I guess who he is as a human being should not influence that decision i also have some more thoughts about um what's the difference between him and anwar Ar. yeah
1: that would be interesting
4: it's i think it's very obvious how different they are because even on the very first day they both ca- were brought in uh, anwar Ar did not hide his face and that's why we have seen pictures of him in the media whereas he, at a, he was always like in the first day he was hiding like behind this really big hooded jacket and yeah. uh since then he's always been coming in with holding a, a paper in front of his face. Yeah. And even he often wears a face mask. Maybe he also feels more comfortable behind it. And I noticed that often very often when when certain facts are read out about the torture practice and what they did in Syria, he he's almost like sinking into his hands, like he's like he has his face in his hands and goes further and further behind him. I don't know huh. if he's just tired or, or if he's just feeling horrible about it. I don't know. This is his, The impression of him is that he's really not uh, very confident. And I think uh, maybe this is also because we also found out that he, as opposed to Anwar R., is not very educated. So Anwar R., uh, he studied law or legal studies um, before becoming a police officer and then a mm-hmm. Secret Service um, employee. Whereas A. Uh, he didn't even graduate from from high school, then directly started working at the police, and he was asked during one of the interrogations, he was asked whether torture was legal in Syria, and yet A. said, uh, "Well, it's legal everywhere, isn't it?" And I was like, "Oh, wow! This man really does not have a lot of uh, insight into things that happen in like outside his wor- his small world. Maybe really is not very educated about." the rest of the world, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah.
4: Another thing is also that Anwar R. Um, came to Germany very easily. I mean, he, he got a visa from the embassy in Jordan, from the German embassy in Jordan, and he came by plane with his family. And uh, he had a he took uh, five years, two months and 13 days, by airplane, on foot, on minibus and on a on rubber boat. So, you know, also, even his, his tr- journey reflects that he's from a whole different class, I guess, than Anwar R.
1: Yeah, yeah.
4: And when you start comparing them, then easily you will see Anor R as like the main guy and yet A as like this not very important foot soldier mm-hmm. or something. Um, and that's also dangerous because I think, you know, someone committed a crime and um, just because another one committed a maybe even a bigger crime or maybe not, doesn't mean that he's not important. I don't want to say that EDA A is like this poor, innocent guy who, who was dragged into something and he couldn't help it. He just seems way less confident than, than Anwar R. Mm-hmm. definitely.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, well, thank you so much, Hannah. This has been really great. Um, thank you for your insights from the courtroom and, and for your thoughts on on a as A as a person. And uh, we'll speak to you soon again.
4: Yeah, sure. Thank
0: Thanks. you. That was the journalist Hanal hitami Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us, Hanna.
1: Okay, we learned quite a bit about ETA A by now. So how would you summarize what you learned about him this
0: week, Karam? Okay, well, from the friends, family members and colleagues I talked to, I got a pretty clear, straightforward message and clearly painted picture. Things are not that black and white as uh, they make it seem, the prosecution. And uh, justice should not be black and white. This is what they say. Uh, Iyad is a hero in their eyes. He's not a criminal because he risked his life and his family's safety to leave his post and come to the good side, what they think is the good side. He should be treated as a crown witness because he told the truth. Before, there was even a court case against him. And, and the Syrian context at that stage, when Iyad A was um, still in his position, it was very complicated and uh, multi layered. And the accusations now do not reflect that. And they see it as a problem. And they insist it's a complicated context mm-hmm. uh, and should be taken into consideration by this court. And uh, at that stage, the Syrian people wanted guys like Iyad A to defect from the regime. And uh, thousands did. They listened to the people, including Iyad. And uh, you can't go after them for the orders that they had to follow before they defected. I think the situation where he was ordered to shoot at protesters sums up what friends and families say to defend Iyad. Uh, they say uh, if he had not followed that order to shoot, he would have gotten a bullet in his own head. Mm-hmm. So what is his choice here, you know, to shoot or get shot? And uh, when the German interrogators asked Iyad A uh, why he did not stop the crimes around him or disobeyed the orders and told his colleagues not to shoot, the people I talked to, they were outraged at that suggestion. They said, this is a ridiculous question. Yad had no choice. Mm-hmm. And what's and what's your take on that, Karam? Well, they say the court in Koblenz really needs to develop a better understanding of the Syrian context at that time. Uh, it, that is uh, ludicrous to say he could have acted differently in situations like uh, the one in which Hafiz Mahlouf, you described... Uh, when he ordered uh, to shoot if you love the president shoot mm-hmm. you know there is uh some truth to that during our reporting on syria we have come across uh, many stories of defectors who did decide to disobey orders to do what they thought was the right thing and many of them ended up dead you know shot right there after facing a court in the field uh, it takes a matter of minutes and many of them if they were not killed right uh, on the spot uh, they thrown in jail maybe until this day Mm
1: -hmm. i mean obviously that is a very tough situation to find yourself in and i I can't say that i can imagine um how that must be but at the same time i want to say you don't just end up in a place like that and then cannot get out anymore there are choices that one makes that lead up to a situation like this right i mean it's not a singular moment in time where you find yourself in a context where you might not have a choice anymore there's there's years and years and years and choices uh, that lead to to a moment like that
0: yeah 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 especially in uh, Yad's case he enrolled voluntarily in 1996 right. yeah and let's just circle back to what the court is dealing with
1: in Koblenz and that is the accusations in the indictment That is what the court is looking at here. And if Ead A says he did not have a choice but to obey orders in a situation like that, then the judges will hear him out and take that into account and his later choices as well. So those might be mitigating circumstances. Uh, That that is also um, part of, of, of what this trial is about. But if the prosecutor can prove the crimes that are alleged in the indictment, then he will have to answer for those. We are, I mean, we're just at the start of this trial still, you know, Um, we are far away from a moment of of guilty or not guilty. His side seems to be saying Iyad A did not have a choice when he was put in situations that turned ugly, that turned criminal. What choice did he have in a context like that? And it sounds a bit like what in law is called a defense of superior orders, where a subordinate, in this case Iyad A, argues that he should be relieved from criminal responsibility, that he should not be held criminally responsible for these acts because he had no choice but to obey superior orders. Mm -hmm. Generally, though, international customary law says that these kinds of defenses are not accepted when the subordinate, in this case Iyad A, knew that the act that he was ordered to execute was unlawful, or at least should have known that, because of how clearly unlawful the order the superior order seemed that's what the international customary uh, law rule says but how the German court will will look at this um, we'll have to see
0: yeah and from what we learned from Hannah, maybe E a was not even aware of the illegality of some of the crimes he's accused of you know when he told German interrogators that he thought torture was legal everywhere.
1: That just shows again that uh, that E A S story and E A S profile is is indeed more interesting than 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 on the face of it. You know, it'll it'll be interesting, it, not just Anwar R's uh, case in this trial, but also E A S. So we'll see.
0: And there is so much more to say and discuss on this point. We will uh, revisit that defense of superior orders in a future episode, along with other interesting topics of international law and philosophical and ethical dilemmas that play a role in this case. We're slowly coming towards the end of this week's episode, but before we go, we want to let you know that this week the court was in session from Wednesday to Friday, so it is still ongoing as we record. But what we can already tell you, it was a special week because for the first time, Syrian victims and survivors actually testified as witnesses. We will dedicate next week's episode to what they said in court and what their testimonies mean for this trial. It was hard to hear because it showed a lot of painful details, but also it was important because it showed also the regime's methodology in torture. And until then, thank you for listening, and thank you to those who have already been uh, very supportive of this podcast. As you know, we are uh, listener-supported, so you can uh, help us by either sharing this podcast with your uh, colleagues and family and friends, or by visiting our website and uh, hitting the donate button. Thank you very much for, for those um, that have already done that.
1: Branch 251 is produced and hosted by the two of us. Thanks again to Martin van Doormale for his
0: production feedback. And thank you, Ransom, for uh, helping with the voiceover.
1: I'm Karam Shomali.
0: And I'm Fritz We'll see you
1: next time on Branch 251. Until then, bye.